Hello, everyone. I wanted to um, mention uh, why I left Christianity. But I also want to mention why I never leave Christ-likeness. And I want to say on record, you can be a Christ-like Christian, a Christ-like Muslim, a Christ-like practitioner of Judaism, a Christ-like Buddhist, a Christ-like Hindu, um, a Christ-like person of all the religions and faiths and spiritualities. You could be a Christ-like deist, a Christ-like atheist, a Christ-like agnostic, a Christ-like secularist. You can be Christ-like no matter what walk of life that you're a part of. So I just wanted to talk about that so people will understand that I am not a us versus them kind of person. Everything I say is out of compassionate love, sacrificial love, altruistic love, agape love, unconditional love. So let me be again what I wanted to say about uh, Christianity. Um, I struggle with the concepts I was taught when I was a child about the Bible. Because of the inability to resolve the taboo issues that are negatively impacting the Christian church that are also negatively impacting those who used to be a part of the church but left the church because of a lot of the scandals that have been erupting and they've been exposed more and more um, through media, through statistics, and through reports, ratios, if you will. In my experience, I was able to meet a lot of ex-Christians and people who had severe church hurt. And often, even I, I was prepared in love to um, people who are not Christian anymore for a myriad of sensitive reasons. I chose to suffer with people who have gone through heinous villainy against them. I've met people who told me that they were raped in church. I've met people who told me that there were um, adulterous sex having happening in church buildings like they told me that the rapes and the extramarital sex you know a married pastor and women mistresses from the church congregation were actually these things were actually happening inside church buildings both and that part really devastated me beyond infinity because I didn't know much about church issues until I became in my late teens and early 20s. I knew that there was gossiping and people were, some people are skeptical about religion. That's all I really knew. I didn't know that, I didn't know anything about church scandals until I attended college and I started doing my research because I would talk to people that would spark research. And I would believe them instantly because I could tell they were genuine about the the lack of genuineness that happened to them, which is the, the hurt that was forced upon them. That's not how real life's supposed to be. That's what I mean to say. And so I um, would count, I would console them and talk to them. I would grieve with them. I didn't try to have all the answers. There was no trite answers. There were no pat quotations. I did not even recite scripture. I would just talk to them human being to human being. 
I would show my righteous displeasure, them too, and we would have life conversations. This started happening late teens, early 20s, when I would interact with people back home and even around Leesburg, Florida, who had a hard time with faith. And um, what really hurt was to know that some of the ex-Christians I met, not all the ex-Christians I met, there was abuse or trauma because you have some people who have good church experiences and have good upbringings and they just decide to be ex-Christians and that's okay. And what I meant to say is, is that what concerned me was not that, but even though that's important, this, what concerned me was that I saw, I looked up rape survivors and how we're treated, because I'm one. Yeah, I don't say that plainly. I don't say that normally. It, I can't tell you how I feel every time I have to be honest about that. Um... I saw how I saw the cover-ups. There were cover-ups of abuse. That's the number one reason why I left Christianity. I left Christianity this week. This week. And how abuse survivors are treated. Like There are some statistics that I didn't know, but non-Christians told, when I say non-Christians, I'm not using discriminatory language nor oppressive language. I'm talking about everybody that's not a Christian. I try to incorporate everybody as much as I can. Here are some statistics that I never heard talked about in church. This was published January 31st, 2010. I consider myself a Christian during the year 2010, and I never heard this talked about. Churches closing and pastors leaving. This is djchiang.com. Remember, published January 31st, 2010, updated May 23rd, 2010. I was a junior in high school at that time. Question, do you know a place to get stats on how many churches close a day, month, year, etc., and the same on pastors and leaders leaving ministry? Good question. And in case you can't tell, this question came in via a text message. The latest research on church attendance could be found in the American Church in Crisis by David T. Olson, which research based on data from 200,000 plus churches in the U.S. religious landscape surveyed by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life has analysis based on interviews with 35,000 plus American adults. Here's some other statistics I found so far. Ex- exerted from this Christian Century 2008 article, Church Closing Rate Only 1%. A new study finds that only 1% of U.S. religious congregations go out of existence each year, which is among the lowest mortality rates ever observed for any type of organization, according to our article to be published in the June issue of the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. Dave Olson's research shows that the, in the 1990s, about 3,200 churches closed each year, or 1.1% of U.S. congregations or 1.1% of U.S. Christian congregations. And Olson added, in the 2000s, it has been 3,700 a year. American church statistics have reported that in America, 3,500 to 4,000 churches closed their doors each year. Half of all churches last year did not add one new member through conversion growth. Churches lose an estimated 2,765,000 people each year to Nominalism. Okay, let me be an educated American and let's go over what that means. Um, in metaphor, okay, the doctrine that universals or general ideas are mere names without any corresponding reality, and that and that only particular objects exist, proper numbers and sets are thought of as merely features of the way of considering the things that exist. Important in medieval scholastic thought, nominalism is associated particularly with William of Ockham. What's the best way I can shorten that up? It denies the real existence of any general entity such as property, species, universal sets, or other categories. Okay, that's somebody's opinion, and that's open for interpretation. 
um, and secularism, meaning no religiosity. Those are open to interpretation. So when I read things, I just let you all do all the interpreting. I do some interpreting, but I we share the interpreting, you know, as the listeners and the you know, host. The 3,500, 4,000 U.S. churches annual closure count is also cited by Ed Stetzer in Planning New Churches in the Postmodern Age. Excerpted from the Condition of the Church in America compiled by Andy McAdams via... 2005. 1,400 pastors in America leave the ministry monthly. Only 15% of churches in the United States are growing. Just 2.2% of those are growing by conversion growth. 10,000 churches in America disappeared in a five-year period. 1,500 pastors, 1,500 pastors actually, leave the ministry each month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. One blog post attributed these findings to Shiloh Place Ministry, shilohplace.org, which drew its information from Focus on the Family. You know it's legit when it comes from them because Focus on the Family, they are highly influential among in the Christian world. The radio, books, any publication you could think of in the Christian world, Focus on the Family... They're a big deal. Ministries today, Charisma Magazine. Now, if it comes from Charisma Magazine, is very popular in evangelical circles. No, it's not. It's not worth sleeping on. TNT Ministries and other respected groups. One thousand five hundred pastors leave the ministry permanently each month in America. Seven thousand churches close each year in America. So I know it was something. I know the numbers may vary because that's what happens when you do statistics. But let's just say thousands of pastors and churches are saying we're not open for the gospel uh, great commission anymore. And I don't mean to be um, cantankerous. I don't mean to be jovial nor comedic about any of these things. These things are heartbreaking as a person who really tried my best to stay a Christian despite all of the scandals and the milk Christianity, the diaper Christianity, and the baby Christianity that I was surrounded with by most of the Christians I have I was worshiping with. Um, that's why mature Christians are one of my heavens on earth. Whenever I interact with them, I go... I'm going to do my best to hold on to you for dear life. And I mean that because I've been meeting more mature Christians, you know, through podcasting and through um, networking. I'm like, why can't I have all of you in my life? I, I The ones who are really sold out for Jesus. I'm like, if church was filled with all of you, do you know how the least of these would be much better treated in our world? Yes, I feel that way. And then I noticed something. Um, the colonialism issue. Um, this is what I can say because I'm trying, I'm working on saying all my thoughts more off the top of my head and less of other people's thoughts for me and you to interpret together. So I saw, I'm going to read bits and pieces of these so you can hear more of what I have to say. Because you're like, you know, Antonio Time Daily, we don't need to hear other people more than we need to hear you. Good point, right? So here are a couple of things. Um, There's a mental health crisis in church. You have Pulpits committing suicide, including pastors. And they leave, some of them have left suicide notes. And some of them have had, as this article says by Scott Sauls, this is the rise and fall of pastors, May 15, 2020, right? So they have had, um, they have adoring fans, but not actual friends, right? They feel trapped. Isolated, depressed, 
if I tell people my ministry will be ruined, we're not allowed to be weak. We can't be human like everybody else, right? When I say rap, I'm not agreeing. I'm just, you know, I say that to keep your ears, you know, listening. Um, yeah, and then the PKs, right? Preacher kids have this thing where they're made to feel like you have to be perfect. And there's a stereotype that preacher kids are wild. Preacher kids are worldly in every way that you can think of. Um, And preacher kids have a lot of pressure. They expect you to be super churchy and preachy. And I don't mean that in, in a despairing way. The people make fun of them. That's how they mean it, not me. They're, what I mean by that is always in church, always evangelizing, always doing um, the work of ministry. And if you're caught, you know, let's say you're, you're a preacher kid and you're like 22. If you're social drink, they go, oh, my God, you're going to hell because you sipping on that 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 devil booze. They may not say it that way, but that's what how they mean it, if you, you know, read between the lines. And so preacher kids struggle with, how can I be my human self, my full humanity, and please God, but not be, and not, they think about, how can I not be too carnal or too religious That is a common PK struggle. And it's unfair. You know, nobody should make them feel like you have to be like your pops or your moms, right? They preach, you got to do it. No, that's the life for them. That shouldn't be the life for every preacher kid. Okay, a preacher kid may say, you know, I'm not... I am who I am, not defined by who my parents are, my parent is. I'm defined by how I'm made, right? And my character, right? So, there was this issue of putting preachers too high on pedestals. They have the same ups and downs that we all have. And don't hold them too high standards. High standards, but not professionistic type. You know what I mean? Because now this part really, really caught my eye. Dr. Tom Rainer, leading pastoral ministry guru, once concluded a survey asking church members what they expected from their pastors. Specifically, Dr. Rainer wanted to know the minimum amount of time church members believe their pastors should give each week to various areas of ministry, including prayer, sermon preparation, outreach and evangelism, counseling, administrative tasks, visiting the sick, community involvement, to denominational engagement, church meetings, worship services, and so on. On average, the minimum amount of time church members expect their pastors to give to the ministry was 114 hours per week. So 24 hours is one day. 48 hours is 2, 72 hours is 3, 96 hours is 4. So almost, basically almost Monday through Friday, actually more than that because they may even contact you on weekends to do all those same various areas of ministry. So every day they expect you to give them physical compassion. Ministry can also take a toll on the pastor's family. When church members don't like the pastor's sermon, when they don't like the direction of the church, when they think the music is too loud or too soft, when they believe the pastor should wear a suit instead of jeans or jeans instead of a suit, when the pastor moves someone's cheese or messes with someone's sacred cow, in quotations, the pastor's spouse can become a sounding board for disgruntled church ministers. Okay. This is the last part I'll read. Second only to those who are married to public officials, no spouse in the world is thrust into the line of not-so-friendly fire more than the pastor's spouse. For this very reason, it took my wife, Patty, 45 minutes to say yes to my marriage proposal. (laughs) 
<sighs> Gotta have a little bit of humor to deal with something very heart-touching. The pastor's spouse can also experience loneliness because in some churches, the pastor is expected to be as available to the church as they are to their own family. On that note, for those who wish to understand the unique calling and burden of the pastor's spouse, please read and digest this essay by our friend Sherry Thomas, 10 Things Women Married Pastors Know. I'll just sum it up. She's her own person. She has a calling. She may struggle financially. She shares her husband with the whole church. She is harmed by gossip. She's living with unrealistic expectations from others and herself. She probably finds friendship in, friendships in the church tricky to navigate. She's harmed by criticism of her husband. She lives with stress and amb- ambiguity. And her righteousness comes from Christ. Now, my listeners... You are all bright people, so y'all can read between the lines on that, because I'm pretty sure we're going to come to the same conclusions. See, you know, these issues are really happening, like burnouts and pastoral suicide, congregational suicide. Like, I never understood. I would hear, I mean, I never heard the word suicide in church. I would listen to sermons on YouTube, and they would break to just say the word and then keep talking about something else, list of things that people are you know, going through, but I never heard a sermon on suicide prevention. I would just hear things like God loves you and, you know, positive godly thinking and God's going to make a way. I'm like, but I never really heard a sermon addressing that even Christians struggle like everybody else. Christians want to be loved like everybody else. Christians want to be liked like everybody else. Christians want to be respected like everybody else. Christians want to be protected like everybody else. Christians want to be cared about and cared for like everybody else. Christians want to be honored, cherished, and feeling at home everywhere they go like everybody else, right? Christians have the same human desires for money and power and fame and fortune and wealth and living large and Roof over your head and a bed to sleep in, a pot to piss in, a, a bucket to shit in, and you know, bathing and looking good and great health and enough money in the bank, a loving family and well behaving kids and you know, being deemed worthy, more than worthy on the job, Uh, you know, power and um, pleasure and, you know, air conditioning and, you know, phone that works and, you know, bills paid for, electricity, water, gas, you know, um, gas in the car, pretty much the same things that non-Christians crave in their humanity, Christians too. It's true. I'm just telling the truth. So, those are things that I noticed that was sad is that this burnout is is really dangerous. And um, I'm really glad that I'm talking about these things. And I noticed the colonial issue. I noticed colonialism from Christian missionaries, some in particular, really um, harmed um, a lot of people because there's a lot of using Christ for materialism purposes. So if I spread this gospel, then we get to have say-so and authority over everywhere we are because of spiritual authority from God that was misinterpreted. Because just because you're in a land, that doesn't mean God gave it to you. It means that you're in that land to share it. But divide and conquer. It's divide and conquer from the Christian standpoint, so we're talking about religion. There's this thing called Christian entitlement. And I need to say this because it's quite, it's a lot of, it's, it's hard truth telling I have to do. As a Christian, you're not impervious to evil and suffering. As a Christian, 
you can you can only say that heaven is where you're gonna end up. And that's pretty much it. It's pretty much the only kind of in your mind, if you're a Christian, safety you have. And all things bad are open season on you. I don't encourage it. I'm just telling the truth. Um I discourage all th- bad things happen to Christians and everybody. But this is a hard truth. You can die of transportation and vehicle crashes. You can die of sicknesses and maladies and illnesses and cancers and violence and murder and all kinds of shittiness that can overtake a person, right? And anything can happen to us anytime that's awful. And I'm discouraging all these things. I am discouraging all these things, the universe. I'm speaking that to existence. But these things are the truth. And often there's anger at God that's not being dealt with. Like, let me get back to sharing this part. And then I'll share the other old parts with more new details. But this one will be a new detail. Something I've already shared previously. Because I don't want to be vague about what I said. I remember being aggressively pursued by Christian women in church. Some of them were twice as older as I was at the time. I was finishing college and they were in the world of work past 40 minus one. So um, that happened in church and at first, I was uncomfortable. Part of me liked the attention, but I was uncomfortable because it came off as you're going to church to get a man. And notice that a lot of Christian women have been told that. So they're only acting what they're told. Don't get me wrong. I know I'm a great catch and, you know, healthy self-esteem is lovely. But what I noticed was it was more out of desperation because some people do go to church looking for a man. Like some, I've heard of Christian women aggressively pursuing preachers and pastors in church in God's house. Um, and when one of and when preachers and pastors get married, a lot of Christian women's feelings have been hurt from what I've known, from what I engaged with. Some of the women I was talking to, some that ex-Christians and survivors of abuse I was talking to and some of them who were just had good experiences but because of their own research of faith they chose not to be part of the faith and that's their right and that, you know hey that's okay um, they shared with me some of these things that they saw in their families and how their aunts were aggressively pursuing certain people in church and not to be gender warfare men aggressively pursue Christian women in church Men go to church looking for a wife. Men go to church. And I don't mean to be heteronormative. These are the only stories I've heard. So I'm only telling the stories I've been told. No heteronormativity at all. I'm just It was just what I was told by people who grew up in church in previous generations and the current one now. How... Um, how even the men would sometimes holler at the women in the church and, you know, women would be hollering at the men in the church, you know what I mean? And I've heard of stories of, you know how, like, there was, um, I heard of statutory rape stories, too, in church. Teenager, 30-plus-some-year-old, those type of stories. I've heard that in church. I've heard that from people who knew people that that happened to them. And, you know, not violating anybody's privacy because they, all of them told me, I want you to tell our story. So I'm, nobody's being violated here. Everything I say is mutually permissible. I had survivors and people just didn't go to church, even though they had it great their whole lives. They just weren't part of the faith. That's fine. That's cool. And they said, hey, whenever you get to a pub, you know, when it's time for you to have your public platforms, I want you to share what I told you. So nobody's being hurt. Um, And this stuff really bothered me. It still bothers me. 
the scandals of every kind bother me. So that's why I say because of scriptural abuse from the from hard-hearted pharaoh type people you know i'm comparing them to biblical pharaoh had a hard heart they have the same hard heart that biblical pharaoh had i a lot of times i think that scripture has been poorly written and that scripture has been poorly interpreted i think both may be true because how can scripture can be used to support forced marriages arranged marriages and um, adults a period over children and um, violence um, embezzlement um, isolation un- underappreciation of others an unappreciation of others and money problems and pretending that you don't have money problems and unnecessary stress, these burnouts, um, this human cruelty of every kind. Um, it's similar to the Rabbi Zacharias situation. Not caring about somebody's Christian credentials in quotation, because I say that in quotations for him. I wouldn't say that about uh, the mature Christian pulpiteers and mature Christian congregants. I only say that towards people who have clearly have fucked up on purpose, like that snake, Rabbi Zacharias. Um, you know, he had hundreds of photos of women. Some of them were quite revealing and rape allegations and exposing himself and being sexually inappropriate to women against the will and way of women. And he was at Gateway. He was on TBN and Gateway Church is a church in Dallas, Texas, pastored by Robert Morris. I'm not throwing Robert Morris under bus. I just... I was flipping through channels and I saw him on Gateway one time, uh, flipping through TBN. And uh, Mike Pence the, spoke at his eulogy, but you know, it turned out that that dude was a viper. And um, how leaders have fallen. It's like Carl Lentz, all his inner demons made him harm his wife, according to him. You know, the rock star status got to his head. Imagine that Gene Carn song. Um, I want to really, because this is appropriate for what I'm talking about. I'm not clowning anybody, but this song really needs, people need to know the lyrics to some of the lyrics of this song. It says, now that you know how I feel about you, don't let it go to your head. No, don't let it go to your head. No, 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 no. Now that you know I can't live without you, ooh-wee, don't let it go to your head. No, 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 no. Don't let it go to your head. No, 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 no. Don't take advantage of my love. Treat me good. Treat me fair. Treat me fine. Because if you're playing games, it would be a shame. Don't break my heart. Don't break my heart. Ooh-oh, ho-ho, right? Now that I've given you every part of me, ooh-wee, don't let it go to your head, no. So he let it go, he let it go go to his head, and that's why he's trying to repair, right? And then you look at Jerry Falwell Jr. I mean, those that revealing photo with the other lady. And in bed with Trumplicanism. And then, you know, it really makes it worse. The being very vocal about his sex life and photos of his wife and provocative sexual poses.
Okay, I gotta read this. All he t wanted to talk about was how he would nail his wife, how she couldn't handle his penis size and stuff of that sort. And, um... His wife had an alleged affair with the pool attendant. Okay. The man that was a pool attendant, right, with whom Falwell has invested in the hostel. The man, now 29 years old, said he began a sexual relationship with the Falwells when he was 20. The same month he met the couple, he claimed the, the affair started. He had frequent sexual encounters with Becky Falwell. While Jerry Falwell Jr. looked on, sometimes in the same room, sometimes remotely via camera, the man shared audio tape, emails, and texts with realtors as evidence for the veracity of his assertions about the relationship. And, you know, he had to drop the lawsuit against Liberty University because he felt like they were damaging his reputation. Then he had to resign as president. Yeah. Wow. And he posted a custom mask with Ralph Northern, the Virginia governor, wearing blackface, but the black alumni from the university got on his ass for it. And see what I mean? These are the issues that have been ignored for years in the evangelical world because... In death, he found out that Rabbi Zacharias was not a Christian. And what he did was covered up and ignored by his ministries and many others affiliated with him. And these are the reasons why... Um, because of how people can easily distort scripture. I've came to some painful conclusions that I didn't want to come to, try my best not to, but it feels inevitable that I don't think that the Bible is the word of God because of the easy distorting of scripture. I don't think that the Bible is inspired word of God. Like, I don't think that the Bible is divinely inspired because of the easy scriptural distortions. Um, I think the Bible is humanly inspired in a lot of ways. Some parts feel divine, though, like how Jesus treated the least of these. So I feel like there's some divine inspiration, but a lot of it feels more human inspired than divine inspired because of how people can use scripture to support um, human um, control freaking. Um, I don't think that the Bible is fallible. No, I don't think that... I'm sorry, let me make a correction on that. I don't think that the Bible is infallible because of distorting scripture so easily. I don't think that the Bible is inerrant because of distorting scripture so easily. Um, I don't believe in sola scriptura because of easy scriptural distorting. I don't believe that the Bible is a sole authority for all of life and all cultures of all time because of easily scriptural distorting. Um... To be able to look online and see credible sources of Bible contradictions, Bible inconsistencies, and uh, biblical errors, that's what makes me think, how can the Bible be perfect if none of us are perfect? It doesn't make sense. That's why I can't see the Bible perfect, because none of us are. Whatever we do, including writing something that is sacred, we're going to put our flaws to it. Because we put our flaws to whatever we do, intentionally, unintentionally, it just happens. I'm not saying human being is all about being flawed, because that's not true. 
that's a part of us, but that's not all of who we are. And so I'm making these bold statements um, because it's understandable why I feel that way. Because I read something in scripture that basically talked about Abraham, Hagar, uh, and um, Sarah that that tended to be allegorical and not literally happening. I'll give you an example. Galatians, I, I read this before, but let me explain more of why I feel the way. Now, remember, for the last time I'll say, anytime I share new, it's so you can get new out of the old I already shared. Insightfulness. Galatians chapter 4, verse 24. These, okay. I'll read that to you, right? These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children are to be slaves. This is Hagar. So the verse before that, so you know what I'm talking about. Hagar and Sarah, tell me, you who, this is verse 21. Galatians chapter 4, same chapter. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what that law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. And then now we're on verse 23. His son born, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine prop was born as the result of a divine promise. Now let's look at this. The commentary for NIV says Paul explained that what happened to Sarah and Hagar is an allegory of a picture of the relationship between God and mankind. Paul was using a type of argument that was common in his day and that were probably being used against him by his opponents. So based on the analysis of, of thinking, maybe what we took literal in terms of a lot of the stories, the, the events that happen in scripture, maybe they're not literally true. Maybe some biblical characters don't exist and never did. Maybe certain events in the Bible that seem to be above our human comprehension, maybe they're not literally true. Maybe they were parables, fables. Maybe they were just stories to point us to be holistic. Maybe multiple biblical characters, multiple biblical events, and multiple biblical scenarios, maybe they're not true in terms of it literally historically occurring. Maybe that scripture is more figurative than literal. And maybe that we wrongly um, envision these things as truly happening. No, these are stories of spiritual truths, but maybe a lot of what we were taught to believe was, no, these are actual people and actual quotes and actual word for word. This happened legitimately, happened legitimately. Maybe that's not true. And I thought about that when I read that verse, because there are times where I just read the Bible, I would open it and I would find passages that spark my attention. You know, when you open a Bible, you're not really sure what book you're going to land. You just open it and the book is there. So it just happened to be Galatians. And I was reading about the fruits of the spirit. Then that caught my eye on my left side of my left eye. I said, whoa, allegory. So maybe scripture is more metaphysical. Maybe scripture is more allegorical. Maybe scripture is more metaphorical. Maybe scripture is less literal, um, less actual, and less um, physical, right? That may be true. Maybe some of the things in scripture, you can get spiritual truths out of what did not happen verse by verse, chapter by chapter, word for word, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, passage by passage. So that's what I think may have happened. Um, I'm not trying to disrespect anybody's beliefs. I'm sharing my thoughts because 
so many people have the same struggles that I do. This is a everything I say is all about calling people in. I'm 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 not calling anybody out. I'm calling people in because I want people to understand that I learned about each and every church scandal, never from any Christians. It was always from people who were who experienced church hurt, people who knew people that they didn't go through church hurt necessarily themselves, but they knew people who did, and they told me. And abuse survivors, uh, survivors of adultery and infidelity, survivors of I was in this church board or I was on this deacon board and I was a part of church leadership and there was like, you know, they would give the preachers um, expensive cars for everybody to see in the parking lot. But you could tell people are still starving and this community deprivation occurring, right? So these were stories I was told by people who, they had no malice against the church. They just said, we want these things to stop because they hurt people who've already hurt, who've never been hurt, but now they're hurting, right? So when they say the Bible is sufficient for all time, it makes me think, Maybe we've misdefined what biblical sufficiency means. It makes me think that what we have um, defined as this is, you know, the traditional beliefs of scripture, I'm starting to think they may not be what really is true because we took something and made it a literalism but actually the Bible is mostly uh, figuratism um, and I don't mean to disrespect people's beliefs, but I've done my research. I'm not saying that the traditionals don't, because tradi- a, a lot of traditional people, they research scripture too. And a lot of them are not in the pulpit, and a lot of them are, right? So you got people in church who research too. That's cool. And you got people who are not in church who research scripture too, like the ones that, in my experience, tended to research scripture were, the sec- were secular people. And growing up, to be honest, I always wanted to be a secular person because secular people are the most okay with loving research of scripture. And they were the most okay with gray areas. I'm giving you details. I think I heard this before. They were the most okay with being human. They were the most okay with not being happy all the time. They were the most okay with, it's okay not to have wealth and the riches and all of life's materialistic feel-goods. They were the most okay with being whole. They were the most okay with not trying to have all the answers, not trying to figure everything out. They were the most okay with the differences, diversity, inclusion, belonging, acceptance, boundaries, um... Resolving conflicts, solving problems. They were the most okay with being complete and mature human beings. They were the most okay with being humane human beings. They were the most okay with mysteries and foggy parts of life. They were okay with unfilled, they were the most okay with unfilled blanks and unanswered questions and mysteries and foggy parts of life and they were the most okay with full humanness, full humanity, being fully human, the full human condition, the full human self-reflection. They were the most okay with being holistic, humane human beings. I needed that. They were the main ones who convince me 
that I'm not special needs, that there's nothing about me that is disabled. They're the most helpful to empowering, helping me empower my own blackness. They're the most okay with empowering me as a child abuse victim. They took me under their wing when my grandma transitioned. They were the main ones stepping up. They're the main ones having the most honest conversations with me. They were the most respectful of me. They did everything a grieving child needs adults to do for them. They always stepped up. Every time I was around them, I felt the most, the most secure in body and soul. I never had any insecurity or doubt and came to them. It was always with faith-based people, sadly. And they were the most, oh, they, they gave me the most, they were the biggest safe space, the biggest safe grace, and the biggest safe havens, literally and figuratively, that I could ever hope for. But I didn't even know I was asking for it because I was wrestling with suicide thoughts and depression at that time. They were the main ones telling me, you are important. You are urgent. You are somebody. You matter. You are everything positive that life has to offer. They were the most complimenting of me, the most well-mannered, the most hospitable people I've ever met in my life. And I say that with joy and healthy pride. So that's why, that's one of the reasons why I'm a secular person today. Because I'm like, when I needed affection, when I needed sensitivity, when I needed my triggers to be honored, when I needed my sensibilities to be upheld, secular people went out of their way and they did it the most. I can't help but to say, and I don't, I usually I don't do favoritism, but I can't help it because of how secular people treated me. They, they were, they, when it came time to, I need family, I need friends. They always stepped up and were the best family, the best friends that my heart was asking for, even though consciously I didn't ask for it. Subconsciously I did through my heart. If I had a choice to, between secular people, faith-based people, child me, even adult me, would pick secular people more than faith-based people because... When it came to doubts and fears and what made me nervous, what made me scared, what made me sad, what made me anxious, made me depressed, secular people were the most comforting of me, the most inviting of me, the most welcoming of me, the most embracing of me. None of my thoughts, I didn't have to worry about my thoughts and my feelings being crazy to them. All my thoughts and feelings made sense to them. I always felt that when it came to hugs, they were the best huggers I've had. The you know, I got the hugs I felt within felt like I'm literally squeezing love, squeezing love in my face. And it feels the most damn good I've ever experienced in my life. So that explains all my feelings. Plus, I looked up how religion, a lot of people in religion treated people with disabilities. And, you know, I looked up how a lot of, I looked up how religion, you know, was used to support um, being mean and being rude and being disrespectful. And because I'm spiritual, I can do whatever I damn well please. I can say whatever I damn well please. And I can use the guise of Christianity, G-U-I-S-C, to do it, right? So that's what I experienced in my life was, you know, I'm a, I am a disgruntled church person in my attitude all the time. But I can do that because, you know, I'm for Jesus. 
I've heard of stories like that. That's why, honestly, I say that the Bible is very confusing because there's not enough contextual wisdom for what it says. Now, when you say something is a sin, is it sin all the time, no matter what the century, no matter what the culture, no matter what the region, no matter what the location, or is it for that time? And how can a book, a 66 in one book, how can a perfect book be so misinterpreted? That don't make sense. If it's from God, it should never be misinterpreted. It should always be interpreted correctly. It should be written that well and seen that well. But it's not, which is very concerning lovingly for me. And then I think about how... um, Well, we're going to say as a church that homosexuality is wrong, but we'll put you in the choir directing position and have you don't ask, don't tell. But your gifts are good enough, so just don't talk about what we say is a sin, but it's not too sinful for us. Hypocrisy. And the women had to dress ultra-conservative if woman just was she just looked good you know hair did face and everything was well done about her right hell 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 I heard of that but here's another thing I heard of women having women having to basically be castigated and the preacher husband was okay with it you know members I've heard of stories like that And so, um, this is my last episode talking about my religious views. I think I covered every issue. Um, like I said, my views on God are rollercoaster for this new detail reason. Because of the rape trauma syndrome I was forced to suffer from and the endless questions that survivors have about God in terms of righteous indignation about what God allowed to happen. So rape trauma syndrome and how rape survivors are treated are the number of reasons why I'm not in Christianity anymore. Um, I had to be real about these things. Um, I'm not trying to be disrespectful of anybody, but this is the pain that I'm getting all out. Um, Pretty much mentioned everything. The atrocities against people, you know, the human atrocities against people are Hispanic, uh, Hispanic descent, and um, the atrocities towards anybody that's not evangelical um, has hurt. And lastly, I'll say this new reason. Um, I used to feel like I was more sin-natured than most people because I was black, autistic, and child abuse victim. Maybe I'm condemned to hell more than most people who aren't Christian. I felt that way when I was a child. I felt like... I must be the worst disciple in Christian history. I must be more treacherous than Judas. I must be, you know, God may scream his head off at me, pick me up, fling as hard as I can to heaven. uh, Maybe God is picking on me and clowning me and bullying me by giving me the three strikes. You're black, right? So my race is inferior by America, according to America. My brain is inferior according to America and who cares about kids, according to America, right? So I felt like maybe I'm much more iniquitous than many others. So those are complexes I had to overcome with the right help, of course. And I felt like maybe my soul is poisoned. Maybe my body is disfigured because... Maybe the God of the Bible picks certain people to be angelic towards and devilish towards too. Those are trauma complexes and trauma doctrines I had to overcome with the right help, of course, on that too. 
So these are all the reasons I laid out all the problems with religion and um I live my life as a beautiful secular individual.